Today we are jumping back into Acts chapter 15. Let's pray. Father, we do want to pray for the people of Israel right now. God, for those who have lost loved ones. Lord, we pray for those who have been wounded. God, we pray for their leadership. And we pray, God, just for that whole region. God, that you would bring peace. Lord, I pray that these terrorist groups would be removed um, they are evil. They are, are instruments of the devil to bring about destruction. And God, I just pray that um, you would just give wisdom. And Lord, I pray probably most of all that the people of Israel and even those living in, in Gaza and just in that Middle East region, that they would turn to you. Lord, there are so many people in Israel who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that they're still looking. God, I pray that you might even use this war to wake them up and open up their eyes, that we would see many, many Jewish people and many, many people in the Middle East come to faith in Jesus. We pray for our time in the word today that you would minister to our hearts, that you would speak to us. And... um, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom that how to apply this particular chapter to our lives and our church. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Today we're jumping back into our study in the book of Acts after a two-week break. And I want to remind you of something that we've seen in the book of Acts. And if you're joining us for the first time, this will catch you up to where we're at. But the book of Acts tells the rather amazing story of how a group of 120 ordinary people, we're talking blue-collar workers, tax collectors, and some women that were thrown in, were a part of the largest and strongest move of God in the history of the world. The story is really quite remarkable. It happens after the resurrection that Jesus is meeting with his disciples on the side of a mountain, and he tells them, okay, this is your job, as I'm going to heaven, and this is your job, that you're to spread this message, the message of the gospel, and make disciples for me of every nation in all of the world, and then they watched him ascend up into heaven. And you think about this, this mission that he gave them to take the gospel to the whole world and make disciples of every nation. That was a big task. In fact, never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 17, probably about 15 or 20 years later, we're told about this group that this is the group of people who have turned the world upside down. So how did they do it? They depended upon the Holy Spirit. They taught the word, meaning they preached the gospel, and they planted churches. That's how they did it. That's how this move of God worked. We saw it begin in Jerusalem, and then it spread into Judea, and then some persecution hit, and they went down into Samaria, and from there, some went over to the island. They sailed over to the island of Cyprus, and then from Cyprus, some guys, and we don't even know their names, they went to Syria and up into a city called Antioch, where a church was planted there, and then the church in Antioch ends up sending Paul and Barnabas out on the very first organized missionary journey. And that's what we've seen thus far in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And at the end of chapter 14, we find Paul and Barnabas coming back from that first missionary journey where God had done such amazing things. They come back to get refreshed and to rest and get refueled. And that's when the church encounters a problem that could have had the potential to derail everything. What happens in Acts chapter 15 has the potential to cause a drift that the church may have never recovered from. You know, living here in Southern California, living by the beach, I'm sure you've been caught in a riptide before, you know, out in the ocean. And if you ever have, it's interesting, some riptides are very, very, you know, evident. There's signs they post up, strong currents today, watch out or don't go into this area. But others are very, very subtle. I mean, you're out there, you're having a good time out in the ocean, and suddenly you look and nothing on the shore looks recognizable anymore. You don't see your chair, you don't see your umbrella, you don't see 
see your family, and you realize, I have drifted. Or worse yet, you're, you have your back to the shore, and when you look back, you, know, you turn around and look back at the shore, you realize you have drifted way far out. You can no longer stand, and, and you're not a good enough swimmer to get you know, back to shore. You're probably going to have to be rescued. Well, here in Acts chapter 15, what we're reading, if this wasn't handled correctly... This would have caused a major drift, and it wouldn't have been long before the church no longer recognized where they were. They would have lost sight of the cross, they would have lost sight of grace, and they would have found themselves far away from the true message of the gospel. So this is a very important chapter. Our outline for today is this. We're going to look at, first of all, the potential drift in verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to see the steps that they took to get recentered in verses 6 through 18. And then we're going to see their direction forward in verses 19 through 35. Let's start with this potential drift. Look at verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, being the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So this is the potential drift. And verse 5 tells us that this potential drift was instigated by these former Pharisees who had come to Jesus. These were guys who, like Paul himself, had come out of being the Pharisee sect in order to follow Jesus. And so these were well-meaning guys who were just off in their theology. And their basic message was this, if the Gentiles really want to be saved, they need to convert to Judaism. They need to be circumcised, and they need to follow the law of Moses. Now, circumcision was the cutting away of the flesh of the foreskin of the male. And this was the identifying mark that God made with Abraham and his descendants. It would be the mark that would separate the Jewish race from the rest of the world. So every Hebrew baby was circumcised when they were eight days old. Now, at that time, you might have thought that that was weird, a weird practice, especially if you were an adult Gentile male wanting to convert to Judaism. But we know today the health benefits of circumcision, which is just another great example of God looking out for his people long before medicine and modern science discovered the wisdom in God's logic. So here's what was happening. These well-meaning believers, these former Pharisees, had come to Antioch, which was predominantly a Gentile church, with this message. Believing in Jesus wasn't enough. If you really want to be saved, you also have to be circumcised. Now imagine the horror of that revelation especially for all of the guys. I mean, remember, there's no anesthesia in those days. And so these guys come with their message. They break out their knives. They're sharpening their knives. And like, who wants to go first, you know? I mean, it makes you wonder if, if all of the newcomer classes in the church of Antioch were filled with women and children, you know? Like all the guys were like dropping their wives off at their, hey, buddy, honey, you go have a good time. I'm going to stay in the car, you know? I'm not going in there. But this is the trip that these guys were laying on the Gentile believers. 
And this problem had the potential to derail everything that God had built up to this point. So we're told in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas, who had just come back from ministering to all of these Gentile people, they had no small dissension or dispute with them. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it, that they disagreed, arguing with them vehemently. This means this was intense. There was some yelling that was going on in this meeting. This was a heated conversation. On the one side, you had these former Pharisees. On the other side, you had Paul and Barnabas, these champions of grace who just got back from watching God move and work amongst the Gentiles. And so things were heating up big time in Antioch. And I want to just pause here and say this. What these former Pharisees who have come to faith in Jesus were doing, it doesn't surprise me. And here's why. We all come to faith, when we come to faith in Jesus, we all bring some baggage into our relationship with the Lord. For instance, I've met many Christians who grew up in homes with no dad, or a lousy father. And so a lot of those Christians that I've met, that that's their story, they have some big time father issues and it's really, really hard for them to really see God as their heavenly father because of their earthly dad and that relationship. I've also seen others who have been saved out of a lifestyle of addiction. Maybe it was to alcohol or drugs, or they saw someone in their family who was addicted and just the destruction that it brought on their family. And so a lot of times when those people come to faith in Christ, their mentality is that a Christian should never, ever touch a drop of alcohol. And I've also seen people who have come out of and get saved out of a very heavy religious background, like maybe Catholicism or some other type of orthodoxy like that, where their whole view of God and the the whole view of religion was it was all just a bunch of do's and don'ts, and you got to follow all of these rules and regulations, and then they get saved, and it's sometimes hard for them to shake that religiosity at first. And I think that was the case with these Pharisees that had come into the church. They grew up in a culture that stressed circumcision and following the law of Moses. And the ceremonial law of Moses consisted of 613 Jewish laws that they had to follow. Circumcision was just one of them. So it's easy to see how these guys coming out of that would struggle with legalism. But the danger of their message was this. They were essentially saying that the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ was not enough. And listen to me, church. Any teaching that tells you that what Jesus did was not enough and that you need to add something to the work of Christ, you need to reject that. And you need to run from that. This teaching had the potential to send the church drifting off into legalism and confusion. So Paul and Barnabas, they're arguing with these these men, and someone suggests, you know, we should take this matter to Jerusalem. We should take this to the big dogs. We should take this to the apostles and the elders and the leadership of the church there. And so they head out. They go on this travel. And that's where we see number two, the steps toward toward getting everyone recentered. They travel to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, and this is what is known as the Jerusalem Council, and Peter's the first to speak. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up. Now, notice that. They're, they're, They're all arguing about this. You know, this was intense. This was like a new thing. How do we handle this? So even the elders, the apostles, they're all arguing. There's a dispute going on. Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This is what we saw in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to Caesarea to the house of that Roman centurion, Cornelius. 
So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, I want to remind you of something here. These guys did not have the New Testament to draw upon for direction on this. It hadn't been written yet. So they didn't have the book of Galatians that Paul wrote where he addresses this very subject. They didn't have the book of Romans. They didn't even have the Gospels. All they had was what Jesus had taught them in the three years that they followed him and their experience of what they, had saw, what they were seeing God doing. And their experiences were going to validate what the Holy Spirit would later instruct them to write in the New Testament. Now, today, it's the opposite. We have the New Testament to help us validate our experiences. But for them, it was the opposite of that. Their experiences were going to validate what the Holy Spirit would direct them later to write. So Peter stands up and shares his experience of seeing Gentiles get saved. And he said, look, they got saved just like us. They, verse 7, they heard the gospel. They heard the message of Jesus. Also in verse 7, they believed. They, the, the gospel was embraced through faith. Paul would later write in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's how these guys got saved, just like us. Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Peter's saying they get saved just like us. And then in verse eight, he says, and they received the Holy Spirit that this became the new mark of the people of God, not a mark of the flesh, but God putting his Holy Spirit in our hearts. And this was the new mark of their conversion, that they received the Spirit of God just like us. And then in verse 9, he says, and they were purified by faith just like us. And I want you to note this. They were purified because of their belief, not before their belief. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're like, you know, I need to get saved. This is how it happens. You hear the message of the gospel. You hear the message of what Jesus did for you, that he left heaven, came to this earth, died on a cross to pay the price for your sins. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, proving that he's exactly who he claimed to be and that he gives life to everyone who believes in him. You put your faith in Jesus. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be saved. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart and you are purified. God looks at you and he says your sins are forgiven and forgotten and you are declared righteous in his eyes. That's salvation. And so Peter concludes by saying, why would we put a yoke of bondage on these Gentiles that we ourselves couldn't even keep? I mean, let's be honest. That makes no sense. Peter is saying, essentially, I don't know about you guys, but I never felt like I was keeping all the commandments very well either. I mean, I found them to be confusing. I could hardly keep them straight. I mean, how, how far were we allowed to walk on the Sabbath? And, you know, could we eat llama meat? And what about turkey bacon? I mean, you know, he's like, it was confusing. And I think Peter is saying here what every honest Jewish person felt. I can't keep all those laws either. But Paul would later point out in the book of Galatians that the purpose of the law was not to produce righteousness in us, but it was merely to show us what the standard was. That the purpose of the law was just to show us that, that we didn't measure up, that we, that we were sinners and we needed a savior, that we needed a righteousness of God that was apart from the law, and Paul would say, and that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So Paul's message is, guys, we are all saved the same way, in faith, in the work of Jesus, not of works. And then next up is Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God worked through them among the Gentiles. So their argument is, hey, it's obvious that God is moving and working because of all the miracles and signs and wonders that he was doing uh, among the Gentiles. People were getting healed and these crazy things were happening and it was evidence of God's love toward them. That was Paul and Barnabas' message. And then James takes the floor and there's more silence. Because James was the brother of Jesus, and he was a pillar in the church. He would serve as the moderator over this council, handling this dispute. We pick it up in verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So the Lord who does all these, or says the Lord who does all these things, known to God from eternity are all his works. So what does James do? James points to Scripture. He points to the prophets and quoting mainly here from Amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12, James was saying that, hey, what we're witnessing is according to what we see in the Old Testament scriptures. That God would, that, that the God's people would consist of two concentric groups of people. At the core would be Israel the tabernacle of David, the people from the line of Abraham, descendants of David, and gathered around them would be the Gentiles or the rest of mankind who are also called by God. So James is pointing out, hey, what what we see happening here is what has always been on the heart of God to bring these two groups of people together. And then he utters a powerful statement in verse 19. Notice it. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love the way the New Living Translation puts this. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is such a powerful statement, friends, that we need to heed today. You see, we need to be very, very careful that we are not making it difficult for people who want to come to Jesus. That we're not making it difficult for people who want to come to Jesus by laying unnecessary trips on them. You see, we in the Big C Church have been guilty of doing this, laying trips on people who get interested in Jesus, making people feel like they need to clean up their act before they can become a Christian. But that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is come as you are. That you come to Jesus just the way that you are. You recognize that you're a sinner and you need a savior and you come to Jesus and Jesus accepts you and then he begins a work, listen, inside of you. He begins a work in your heart and that work that he begins in your heart begins to affect your life on the outside. It begins to affect the way that you live and the way that you think and the things that you make priorities in your life. But we have to be careful because people today in the church can come across in a way that makes people think that they need to believe a certain way politically in order to be saved or follow Jesus. Or we can make people think that they need to think a certain way on social issues if they're going to be a Christ follower. 
Or would they need to believe and and follow a certain standard of morality in order to be saved? Or they need to dress a certain way or listen, not listen to a certain types of music. And the list goes on and on and on. And my friends, we have to be so careful that we're not putting forth the idea that people need to believe exactly the way we do on these sorts of things in order to be saved. We may not say it directly, but what we are implying by our actions is we're doing the same thing that these guys were doing, is we're making it difficult for people who are turning to Jesus to really come to Jesus. And I think those of us who have been saved for a while, we need to remember this. When we first came to Christ, we, we didn't believe the way that we do now about certain things. When we first came to Christ, we had our own crazy ideas and crazy things that we were still involved with in doing. But what happened, the more that we began to study the word, the closer we got to Jesus, the more he began to transform us, the more God's word began to renew our minds, that we started looking at things and seeing things from a proper biblical world view. And that's how it happens. And we need to allow the the same thing, that same process to play out in the lives of others as well. We need to avoid making things difficult for people who are showing interest in Christ. So James says, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. And then we see that he gives the direction for going forward. Verse 20. But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Barnabas and Paul, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they wrote this letter by them. So here's who it's from, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Here is the letter. Charting the way forward. This is, this is what was to be read throughout the synagogues. This is what was to be read and shared with all the Gentile b- believers. Verse 24, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. In other words, we didn't send these guys out. This message did not come from us. These guys had no official capacity. Verse 25. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well, farewell. And then we see the response to this word. Imagine the anticipation. You're a Gentile, and you're like, you know, what are they going to say? And these guys show up, and so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced over it. It's encouragement. All right, no circumcision. (laughs) But here we see the direction going forward. That the Holy Spirit and the leadership of the church said there were four things the Gentiles needed to follow. Now, one of them was a moral issue. The other three were relational issues. One had to do with purity, and the other had to do with sensitivity. 
and love for their Jewish brothers and sisters. Let's start with the moral issue. They were to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, some might ask, of all the moral issues that they are, why did the Lord focus on this one? Why not mention murder or stealing or lying? And I think the answer to that is is things like lying, stealing, and murder were moral issues that were universally regarded as being wrong. That, that you're not going to get much pushback on those issues in any culture throughout man's history. Lying, murder, stealing, those are wrong. But there has been a wide range of belief concerning sexual practices. And sexual practices were commonly accepted in that culture in the same way they have become so accepted in our culture today. In that culture, as in our culture today, the common thought was this. What you do with your body and who you do it with sexually, is that's up to you. That is your business. And they had a very broad view of what was sexually acceptable. But God, who designed sex and created it to be enjoyed, has always made it very, very clear in his word that sexual intimacy was to be reserved for the marriage relationship alone. We're told in Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. You see, God has always seen the sexual union, hear me on this, God has always seen the sexual union as a sacred and holy thing between a husband and a wife. That the sexual union in God's eyes is not just a physical union, but it's also a spiritual and an emotional union. But the devil has always sought to take that which God has said is holy and sacred and set apart and to be special. The devil has always sought to make it common or even dirty. And he succeeded in that as it's related to sex. And so people today downplay the beauty uh, and the holiness of the sexual act. They say, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a physical thing. It's just two bodies coming together. But God wants us to see sex as more than that. That it is this beautiful and complete union of the heart and the spirit and the body between a husband and a wife. And so God tells unmarried people to abstain from sexual immorality, to abstain from the, from having sex with each other. But to those who are married in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, you don't abstain. You, you guys go for it. You enjoy it. That's why I created it. Now, sexual immorality is any sex outside of marriage. God says we're to abstain from that. But one might argue, I've had people tell me this, but my girlfriend and I, we love each other. And so we live together and we think that it's okay for us to have sex together because we're committed to one another and we love one another. And that is such a popular idea today amongst Christians. People professing to be Christians. God would say, if you really, really love her, put a ring on it, you know? But people think that way. They'll say that type of thing. And you, but you know, they, they say, oh, we love each other. Listen, the Bible calls that fornication, and it calls it sin. There are others who would say, well, I think it's okay for God. Okay, I think God thinks it's okay for me to carry on this extramarital affair. Because God knows my spouse isn't meeting my needs. And I know God wants me to be happy, so I think he's okay with this. And you call it a fling or you call it an affair, God calls it adultery. And he calls it sin. And he says you'll be judged. One might say, well, I think God is okay with me being in a same-sex relationship because we're committed to one another. In fact, we even got married. Listen, God calls that homosexuality. 
and he calls it a sin. Now, someone might say, well, Pastor Rob, you're not being very loving or affirming right now in what you are saying. Do you realize that being loving and affirming are not necessarily the same thing? Being affirming is saying, I'm going to affirm you in your decision no matter what it is. I'm affirming you. I'm saying I'm okay because I quote unquote love you. That's not being loving. If I affirm you in a decision to do something that is going to be harmful to you, that is not loving at all. You know, you, let's say you said, you know, I'm going to drink some poison today. And I'm like, okay, I affirm you. Go for it. You're free to do with whatever you want to do, you know, with your body. Is that being loving? Or if my grandson Josiah was like, hey, I want to play with that rattlesnake. And I'm like, go for it, you know, Josiah. I'm affirming you, whatever you desire. And he gets bit by a rattlesnake and dies. You'd want to have me arrested. You see, that wasn't loving. That was sick. But I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking drinking poison and playing with rattlesnakes is not the same as being in a loving relationship with someone of the opposite sex or the same sex. That's not a fair comparison. And you're right, it's not the same. It might even be worse. And here's why. Drinking poison and playing with rattlesnakes will only kill you physically. But living in a sexually immoral relationship, having sex outside of marriage, can kill you spiritually. It has eternal ramifications, and the Bible says that those who are practicing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. God says that, not me. So the loving thing is to tell you what God says. So please understand, I am not trying to be mean here. I'm trying to be loving and telling you the truth. Now, I want to pause here and say this. I have great empathy toward people who battle with same-sex attraction. I will say I do not understand that struggle at all, but I do know that it is real. I've talked to too many people, people who love Jesus, who have that struggle. But here's the thing. Even though I can have empathy for that struggle, I can't affirm that lifestyle because Jesus says it's sinful. But I'll tell you this. I believe in the power of Jesus to help people who struggle with same-sex attraction That over time, as they continue to follow Jesus, he can change those desires. In the same way, he changed our desire for sinful things that we were pursuing and being tempted by. And if he doesn't change those desires, and I know for some he hasn't, I also know that he can give you the power to live a celibate life that glorifies God. I know people that that's their story today. And we as a church are committed to helping people through that process of transformation. That's what we want to do for those who are wrestling with that struggle. So the moral issue, the word to the Gentiles was this, that they are to abstain from sexual immorality. That was about their relationship with God. The other three things they were to abstain from had to do with their relationship with others, their Jewish brothers and sisters, to be exact. So in verse 28, they're told that they're to abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled. What is that all about? Well, in the Gentile pagan world, when they were sacrificing to idols... Part of the meat was consumed on the altar. Part of it was just cooked and eaten. And part of it was taken and sold in the marketplace. And you could get a great cut of meat at a really, really great price. But to many in the Jewish world, to partake of meat offered to idol was the same thing in their minds of being involved in idolatry itself. That was their conviction. 
In fact, in verse 20, it says they believe that the meat was polluted by idols or contaminated by idols. So they avoided the meat. Now, later on, Paul would write about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. On the subject of Christian liberty, Paul would say that, that we know, we know that an idol's nothing. It's just a piece of wood. It's just a, a stone. It, it, it's nothing. And so eating meat offered to idols really isn't any big deal. It's, it's not idol worship. But then he would say this, but if your Jewish brother or sister has a strong conviction about that, you in love need to abstain. In fact, you might even need to forfeit your liberty then run the risk of stumbling or offending your Jewish brother. So Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, as well as what they're being told here in Acts chapter 15, is this, love always trumps liberty. And to flaunt my liberty in the face of a believer who doesn't share my liberty, my same convictions on that, is the opposite of love. And to try and force my liberty on someone else who doesn't have that liberty is not loving at all. So the principle here for the Gentiles was one of walking in love toward their Jewish brothers and sisters. But what about this thing about blood and things strangled? What was that about? Well, it was a similar thing, but with a theological implication. You see, in Judaism, as is in Christianity, blood is sacred and important. Blood has symbolic implications for us. So in Leviticus chapter 17, God said that blood was sacred, that life is in the blood. And God taught in his word that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. And so when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, what did God do? He offered a sacrifice. Blood was shed to cover their sin. Later on in the book of Exodus, at the Passover, when God is going to, the angel of death is going to come over the, the, the city of, of Egypt, the, the capital city, and all the firstborn who do not have the blood of a lamb sprinkled on the doorpost of their home are going to be killed. And that picture was one of, of the cross of Christ and how his blood covers us and saves us from death. It all pointed to the cross. On the Day of Atonement, in Jewish history, on the Day of Atonement, what would the priest do? He would take the blood of a lamb and he'd go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Again, another picture of the cross. So to the Jews, blood was a sacred part of their belief system and these Jewish Christians saw the connection, the clear connection to Jesus. But in the pagan world... Blood wasn't sacred at all. An animal that was strangled meant that they didn't have the blood drained from it. And pagans would eat raw organs of these animals and they would drink the blood in their rituals. So the admonition to abstain from blood and things strangled was essentially encouraging the Gentile believers to adopt a higher view in regard to blood and to see the spiritual implications for blood, to not take it lightly anymore. And again, this was connected to living with a greater sensitivity to their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so this was the direction that was given to them for going forward. And this seemed reasonable to them. It made sense to them. They had this heart to walk in love and they rejoiced in it. And so that would be the way forward for the church to avoid getting derailed. There would be grace for these original guys who were spreading this. But later on, when people started to ignore this direction and directive and, and you know, these guys come into Galatia and they're spreading this message again, some new guys now, Paul doesn't hold back. Paul says, I wish that those who are saying those things that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, I wish they would castrate themselves. It's literally what he said. And he wasn't trying to be, you know, 
just gross and graphic for shock value, Paul was illustrating the seriousness of taking anything and adding it to the finished work of Christ. And so a theology or belief that says that what Jesus did was not enough needs to be rejected. And that's the point of this. So the way, that was the way going forward. Let's, let's read real quickly verse 32. So now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they went back with greetings from the brethren and the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they stay, everybody's on the right page, the drift has been avoided. And this chapter ends with Paul and Barnabas getting ready to go on their second missionary journey. And we looked at this where they wanted, Barnabas wanted to bring um, John Mark with them, who had deserted them. We looked at this in Acts 14 in a message that I entitled, Your Failure Doesn't Have to Be Final. Encourage if you missed that. To, look, to, to go and check it out online. But I want to finish today by saying this, by considering three things that we need to watch out for as a church and individually. Three things that we can be prone to drift from the truth if we are not careful. Number one, we need to be watchful for the drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. And here's what I mean by that. After we have walked with the Lord for a while, we can lose sight of our mission. Our mission is to see lost people come to Christ and get discipled. And we can lose sight of that. After we've been in the church for a while, we can think that the church is just about meeting our needs. So we come to church with the perspective on our own preferences. And that's when we start complaining about things like the music's too loud or, you know, that sort of thing. Or how come, you know, we can't have traditional music? You know, how can we have these rock bands, you know, and that sort of thing? Listen, the music that we play is about our worship, yes, but it's also about relating to our culture. This is the kind of music that <laughs> our culture listens to. And so our heart is to reach our culture. Sometimes people will say, you know, Pastor Rob, your sermons just aren't deep enough. <laughs> Listen, if you feel that way, the focus of my teaching is not directed at those of you who have been sitting here for 20 years. I think you're mature enough to go deeper on your own. And I hope that you would do that. I'm trying to make this understandable for those who are brand new and for those who are not saved. In fact, I think the greatest compliment that I ever got from a seasoned lady in our church was she said this, Pastor Rob, I love the way that you, you have a way of making complicated things simple. And I love that. I try really, really hard to do that. Plus, I told her, I have to make it you know, simple enough for me to understand it. So you know, <laughs> that's part of why I do that too. You know, our children's ministry... There's an aspect of our youth ministry. There's aspects of it that are fun, but also very, very Bible-based because we want to uh, be able to impact people and affect people that don't know Jesus, who have never, ever come into a church setting. We have a passion for those who are on the outside, and that will also always trump pacifying insiders, and I hope that you would appreciate that heart and that mindset. I mean, we've had over 100 people this year alone in our services make professions to Christ. And we rejoice in that. That's part of our mission. So the first drift that we need to avoid is the drift from passion for having a, no longer having a passion for insider, outsiders because we're trying to pacify insiders. The second drift that we need to avoid is from grace to law. And that happens when we start putting our convictions on others. And we end up with a definition or standard of Christianity that isn't biblical. We need to avoid that. 
We need to watch out for that. We, need to, we run the risk when we do that of drifting into legalism. And that leads us to the third thing that we need to avoid. The third drift, which is very, very similar, is a focus where our focus is on external conformity instead of internal transformation. That the message all, it becomes about performance-based acceptance mentality that essentially says that you are loved and accepted by God, by Jesus, based on your performance. And so if you are reading enough and praying enough and witnessing enough, then God is, you know, God loves you. But if you're not doing those things, he's not really happy with you. Listen, church, nothing can change your standing with God as a Christian. If you believe in Jesus, you've given your heart to Jesus, nothing can change your standing with God. Nothing. The amount of Bible that you study, the amount of prayer that you do, the amount of witnessing that you do, how deeply you worship, none of that changes your standing, but it can affect your intimacy with Jesus. It can make your intimacy with Jesus grow stronger. Example, I am married, been married for 37 years to my wife, Denise. That is my standing. And there's no amount of good things that I can do that changes my standing. I am married to my wife. But there's a lot of things that that we can do that helps our intimacy with one another grow. As we spend time communicating with one another and we spend time, you know, just involved in life-giving things with one another, our intimacy and our love for each other grows, but it doesn't affect our standing at all. Does that make sense? So we as a church, we need to be careful to avoid that drift from having a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. We need to be careful to not drift from grace into law, and we need to be careful that we're not drifting where our focus is on external conformity instead of internal transformation. Can I get an amen to that? Are you with me on that? All right. Hey, let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I'm so thankful that here in the early church that your leaders had the wherewithal to address this situation head on so that the church didn't drift into focusing on things that just took away from the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as individual believers and as a church that we wouldn't make it difficult for people who want to come to Jesus to come to Jesus by laying trips on them that take away from the power of the gospel. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that that doesn't yet know you, God, I pray today that they would open up their heart to you. That they would, having heard the gospel today, that they would say, you know what, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And then they put their faith in Jesus today. That you might fill them with your spirit and you might purify them.